Hello again. Welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at braintraffic.com. Hello. Thanks a lot for joining us again content strategy podcast. Um, I am super excited about today's guest. Uh, Her name is Abby Covert. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Covert. Um, I have a long list of all the amazing things that Abby has done here, and I'm just going to read them to you. She's currently Senior Staff Information Architect at Etsy, which we established was way too many words for one job title, especially when you said you're the only IA there. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. Well, they just wanted to give you a lot of words to help you feel as important as you are. Uh, she is the author of the outstanding Making Sense of Any Mess. She is the former president of the IA Institute and the inventor of World IA Day. Um, I only knew two out of those four things before we started chatting, and now I'm a little starstruck. Abby, <laughs> thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, um, as I was explaining before we before we started today's podcast, usually the format of these is I'm just going to ask you a little bit about your background, and uh, we will go from there. Abby, you and I, unlike many of my other guests, you and I have never really sat down and had a conversation about your work before. So this is going to be the first time I'm hearing about all the sweet behind-the-scenes details of the amazing stuff you do as well. So um why don't we start by having you tell me all about yourself? Go. All about me. Let's see. All so, about me. Um, so I grew up on a small Caribbean island. Um, Is that which, real? Yes, that's real. <laughs> that's a, a real fact. <laughs> I was like, well, she's going to start off by making up something awesome. But no, no it's a real thing. No, that's a real thing. Yeah, I grew up on St. Croix, which is one of the, oh, sure. um, the Virgin Islands. Um, and I was homeschooled. So, you know, that tells you a little bit about my, my predisposition to go nerdy on stuff and be alone. Um, <laughs> so, so I have both of those things working for me. Um, and when you grow up on a Caribbean island, you pretty much know that you're not going to live there forever unless you're interested in a career in tourism or uh, entertainment or, you know, some sort of restaurant job or something like that. So sure. for the most part, I knew that I was going to go somewhere else. And I ended up going to Northeastern University, um, mostly no offense to Northeastern, but at the time, homeschooling was not as accepted as it is now in uh, post-secondary education. So Um, there was something about the list of schools being around 10 that would take homeschooled students. No, are you kidding me? Yeah. So that's like the dark ages. It was. Yeah, it was definitely, I feel like a pioneer though. So it's okay. In so many Um, ways. Yeah. So I ended up going to Northeastern University and at the time I really wanted to be a print designer. Um, I had spent a lot of my teenage years volunteering as a print designer for local organizations. Um, I just was like really, you know, artistic uh, my whole life. So I really felt like that was the job for me. Um, And I didn't really have any awareness of kind of the digital world at that point. I mean, we had internet, but it was just really slow. And I just didn't have a lot of exposure to things like video games or even like popular culture um, as kids that grew up in the same time frame kind of did um, if they lived on the mainland US. So going into college was pretty much a big shock to me. Um, and it was my first exposure to like, oh, wow, there's there's like designers who work on the web and that work on digital things. So 
two years into undergraduate, I got tapped for um, this emerging program called Multimedia Studies, which probably dates me a little bit as well, because um, I'm pretty sure that we don't use words like Multimedia Studies anymore. <laughs> um, but maybe maybe, maybe that program is still in existence and still called that. I kind of doubt it. Um, so in that program, that was my first time really understanding that the same principles that I had learned in design school from a print design perspective could be equivalated to um, what is going on in the digital world. Um, and I became really interested in that. That all said, I still wanted to be a print designer. So when I got out of my undergraduate degree, I started looking for jobs. And the first job that I accepted was a freelance uh, gig on off of Craigslist. And the title of the post was Design Icons from Home for Banking Software in Bermuda. And I was no. like, yes. And I was like, well, this sounds shady. <laughs> but I really need to pay my rent, so I'm going yeah. to go for it. And um, the the way that it worked was I had one telephone call with a project manager of a software company in New Hampshire that was working with this client in Bermuda. And he was like, great, you sound great. Your rate's great, meaning I was cheap. And he was like, I'm going to email you a list of words that I want you to make icons for and the size that the uh, software architect wants the icons. So I was like, okay. I can't believe this was a gig back then. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this was a gig. This was definitely a gig. On Craigslist. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Craigslist. That was like the heyday of Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is also like pre me knowing that you could get murdered off of Craigslist <laughs> for accepting things like this. So I'm, I'm Via sure. a job description yeah, for I'm you know, sure banking my, icons in Bermuda. Exactly. I don't think my parents would really approve of the story like in hindsight, but we're all glad that I'm still alive and that I made it. Um <laughs> So, and yeah. somewhere out there, there are some really amazing icons in Bermuda. Oh my gosh, they were just gorgeous. They were just shiny objects that you you just, I mean, they're. I bet they were. And in a vacuum, they really were. And I spent hours on them, more hours than I was getting paid for because I was just like, it was my first gig. I was so excited. And then it came up that in order to get them the working files, they were too big to email. And so I had to rent a car with my jazz drive, drive to New Hampshire from Boston where I lived and deliver these icons in person and pick up my check. So I did that. And while I was talking to the project manager, the software architect put the icons into the software and he turned his laptop around and he showed me what it looked like. And I basically gasped and I said, this is terrible. You can't put all of those things up at the top of the screen. It's so confusing. And they just looked at me like, what? Like you just designed these things. W what do you mean? And I said, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like they don't have any labels. They're really like just ambiguous. Like I just don't know how anybody will use this software. And they were like, well, what would you do instead? And I said, well, it's software. Like shouldn't it have like a menu system? And they were like, what? Like mind blown that you would even have like words instead of this like icon weird bar. I'm seriously listening to this story with my mouth hanging open. Continue. <laughs> continue. It's the greatest origin story. This is my Cinderella story of, of information architecture. So the project manager turns to me after I tell him about this menu system and he goes, do you know what information architecture is? And I said, yeah. I'm a print designer. Of course I know what information architecture is. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I do. And he was like, no, I mean like for software. And I was like, 
that's a thing? That sounds amazing. <laughs> so he told me about like this whole thing, information architecture for the World Wide Web and for software. He told me about the Polar Bear book, which was written by uh, Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville. And I basically like went to the bookstore when I got home, bought the book. Yes, I bought the book in a bookstore, <laughs> not on the internet, <laughs> also dating the story. And I just was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. And that company ended up hiring me at first as contract and then full time as their first junior information architect. I have chills right now. Yeah, it, it was it was really honestly like I I I love that story because it's so part of me. But I also hate that story because it's like not reproducible for so many people. And right. they, they call me and they're like, how do you get into information architecture? And then I tell them the story and they're like, that sounds impossible. <laughs> like, I know. And it, Starting it, with being homeschooled in the Caribbean. Yeah, no, it, it happened to me. And yeah, so I, I spent the first two years of my information architecture career, I worked on Microsoft implementations, um, mostly in SharePoint. And I learned everything about like working with clients. And I I uh, had to learn how to like interact with users in terms of testing the concepts for the structures that that I wanted to put into these pieces of software. Um, and I learned about like working in an office with people and I learned about technology and the software architect that I worked with on my first project really like took me under his wing and taught me all about how software is made and like the kind of underpinnings of, of it conceptually. Um, and I just, I fell in love with it. I just, I really thought like, this is where I want to be. And print design kind of has remained a hobby for me. But um, but yeah, from there, I just have gone on to more and more IA challenges, bigger and bigger projects, different companies. And here I am 14 years later. <laughs> How you're such an active member of the IA community. That was when I first figured out oh my God, content strategy is a thing. Like the first thing I did because I owned my own company and was, you know, we were making stuff up for web copywriting as we went along was to like to the internet and try to find anything that I could about content strategy. You know, and now it's like this large, um, really active community. You've played such an active role in developing and nurturing the IA community. Tell me about when you first started kind of reaching out and trying to make those connections and what was behind that. Oh man, another another Cinderella story. You're like picking them all out for me. Um, so it was it was about four years into my IA career. So I had been practicing mostly as um, a team of one um, or a team of you know one or two on various projects. And um, I didn't really I didn't really know that like communities of thought existed. Like I knew that websites with articles existed, but it never occurred to me that those people, were real people that you could like meet and talk to about things. Like it's just, I, you know, I think that that is a pretty common thing that oh, yeah. people are maybe not so much anymore because people can get, you know, quote, get to know people via their social media feeds and really see sort of more personal sides of them. But, right. but I think that that idea that like, what do you mean I could approach this author or this speaker is pretty, pretty common still today. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it, this was before social media. So this was before, right, right, right. before the modern forms of social media. So like you could just be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to friend Peter Morville on Facebook like that. Right. Didn't, that didn't occur to me. So um, it was I think it was about 2007, maybe a friend of mine who was another information architect. He was um, a couple years more advanced in his career in, in IA. He was coming to Chicago where I had moved and there was an information architecture conference. And he was like, you should get your boss to pay for you to go to this conference about IA. And I was like, 
whoa, there's like conferences that you go to for your job. Like I get to take two <laughs> days off of going to the office and like go listen to nerdy people speak about nerdy things. Like that sounds so awesome. So uh, I went to the, I got permission from my boss. He bought me a ticket. I went to the conference and I was just like mind blown. Like, oh my gosh, there's a community of people who are challenged by the same things that I'm challenged by every day in my job, who are actually like really decent human beings. And then it was just like, oh God, how do I actually overcome the introvert in me and talk to any of them? Because I'm like, you know, I'd never met anybody else that I didn't work with directly who did what I did. And I was like, what do you even talk about? How do you connect? And so we went to the after party. This was at the IDEA conference, which was thrown by the um, the IA Institute at the time. Um, we went to the after party and I was just standing around with like my free beer um, and this guy was standing next to me and it was Andrew Hinton, who is uh, a really well-known information architect, at, which I didn't know at the time. And I started talking to him about like, you know, oh, I'm Abby and like I just moved to Chicago and I don't really know too many people that do IA and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, do you know about the IA Institute mentoring program? And I was like, what? There's a program? <laughs> like, that sounds amazing. So, um, so I like that night I submitted, I looked up on on the internet, like the IA Institute, which I really didn't know that much about. And I submitted uh, my application to be part of the mentoring program. And like within a week, they sent me a note with like a couple of names. And one of the names was the um the president of the IA Institute himself, Russ Unger was living in Chicago or right outside Chicago. And he was open to taking on a, a protege person. Um, so I reached out to him and we started an email back and forth of like him asking me kind of what my career goals were. And from there, he um, took me out to lunch one day in Chicago, like near my office. And he was like, hey, the best way for you to get involved is to volunteer. And I was like, I love volunteering. Like my whole <laughs> my whole childhood was volunteering because I didn't go to school, you know. So I was very um, amped about that. And he brought me on as a junior producer on the next year's conference that they were producing, uh, which was the same conference that had started this whole thing for me. Um, and from there, it just kind of snowballed um, my organizational skills and my limitless time from <laughs> having no life outside of my job kind of allowed me to do a lot for uh, for that community in that small way. And then I got bigger and bigger jobs until I finally ended up, uh, I think it was like six years later, I was the president of the Institute. Um, so yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. I just, I've always been really um, amped about giving my time and, and talking about IA. That's I I was I'm picturing like this this cartoon where it's like panel by panel of like important moments in Abby's life and and in each panel your voice is getting higher. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. There is <laughs> mentoring. <laughs> I mean it was it was really life-changing. It was just like it went from it went from me thinking coming out of college, you know, I came out of college at a time where there wasn't a lot of jobs especially in the creative fields and you know, I kind of thought like, oh God, did I make a mistake? Like, did I, did I do something to kind of pigeon my whole myself into not being able to have a livelihood from what I want to do? And this just completely changed my perspective. Like all of a sudden it was like, wow, these people, not only do they like what they do and they're good at it, but they learn, they're passionate about it enough that they're like spending their, their off hours progressing this community of thought. And I just thought that that was like, so magical. Like it just, it aligns so much with my, my personal values. Do you feel like with, with social media, because what I, I actually just 
saw something unfold on Twitter yesterday where one of our former confab speakers, the, our content strategy conference, one of our former speakers was saying, oh, I'm really nervous about pitching a talk because I got some bad ratings last year. And like there was this overwhelming output of support from other members of the content strategy community, you know, like you can do it and don't let one bad review and you're so smart. And and I just was really fascinated to see that play out so actively and almost emotionally on uh, social media like that. Do you, can you talk to me a little bit about other avenues that, that uh, I community has kind of taken or forged, whether it's via social media or group writing projects or um, whatever, whatever you, you can think of where people can, you know, get their foot in the door with the community or start volunteering? Like how do people, that seem, that might seem like a really overwhelming yeah. um, obstacle, you know, to overcome if you're not standing next to this guy at the IA summit. I mean, how, how do people start to connect with others? Yeah. I mean, and honestly, like you could not have given me a more perfect segue into why World Information Architecture Day exists. Um, because World IA Day exists exactly to fill that need. That like the story that I just told you relied on me being in a major metropolitan area, standing next to a very influential speaker who could give me guidance and connect me with another very influential person within the community that immediately launched me into kind of the the like global level of that community of thought. But more often, um, that's not something that is able to happen in every person's kind of existence and their, their time scale. So what World IA Day is, is really a framework for bringing that idea into a local community. And what we've seen happen over time is that people who start out by saying, hey, I think information architecture is neat. I'm thinking about having a career in it. Like we have students um, all over the world that organize those events. And by organizing the event in their local community, for, you know, 10, 20, 30 people. I mean, some of these events are as small as like a pizza party watching live streams from other locations. They start to meet other people who are interested in it and they start to say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had this thing? And then they go off and they create a project about it, which gets them visibility for their country or um, for that area of the world or even a global presence. And in some cases, we've had those folks then move on um, to become part of the ranks that are running the global organization that runs that event. So I really feel like in-person interaction, like, yes, social media is is a great way for people to connect. Um you know, the story that, that you just related is one of those like positives um, that I hope to see more of because uh, I feel like in the early days of social media, it was a little bit more like that. And we're, mm. we've kind of moved into um, a lot of like self-promotion and arguing in social media, which mm. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but I feel like the in-person connection and even the one-to-one connection, like the mentoring program um, that the IA Institute has, I feel was a huge credit to me because I don't think that I would have been able to say, hey, I want to volunteer for this conference. Like it never would have occurred to me to think like that I could do that, that I had the permission to stand up and say something like that. But if one person who just has a couple years more experience than you is able to sit down and have lunch with you or coffee with you or even a Skype call with you and say like, hey, here's here's some ideas. Here's some things you might think of. I, I've been absolutely amazed by how easily people kind of have the, the fire lit under their, under their butt to get involved. Because once you give them permission, um, they want to. And I've seen those people really grow. And I, I've made it a a big part of my focus, um, you know, in the, the last couple of years of making sure that I'm paying it forward and mentoring the next generation of folks that are going to have stories like this for podcasts in the future. <laughs> All right. Tell me, tell me some of the um, 
new kinds of challenges or opportunities that you're seeing with this new generation of IAs? Because really, you know, we had folks kind of paving the way, connecting the dots between IA for software architecture and IA for websites. And now, you know, the even larger sort of technical and content ecosystems across platforms and and properties and so on. Tell me about some of the some of the challenges you're seeing with with folks who, you know, it's not even folks who kind of have grown up in their careers with social media, but sort of the folks entering the field right now. Like what 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 obstacles and opportunities are you seeing in sort of a matured discipline like IA? Or is it a mature discipline? Um I mean I, I think like one of the the biggest obstacles that I see people facing that want to get into IA right now is there's a real industry pressure to generalize your practice as opposed to specialize your practice. Oh, interesting. So there's a very large um, kind of contingent of companies who are hiring or programs in existence that will push someone that has interest in IA towards becoming a UX generalist where they're doing uh, visual design, they're doing prototyping, they're doing research, they're doing content strategy, they're doing information architecture. Um, all of those things are are important, I think, for you to have like a working knowledge of in order to have a career in IA. Uh, but when you get into kind of the hiring world, companies want people that are, you know, for a better word, the unicorns that can do all of right. it and do all of it really well at that mid to senior level. Um, and what I see more often than not is people saying like, I really want to be an IA. I just, I don't know how to make money just doing that. Like companies just aren't hiring just that. Um, so we have a real chasm of there's a, a bunch of senior people that have uh, IA specific roles, but the role of junior information architect is something that that our community really struggles with. Is whether or not it even exists, um, just because there's so much in terms of information architecture, one of the things you have to be really comfortable with is complexity, and to throw someone who has very little experience um, and only a theoretical knowledge of dealing with complexity at actual complexity. Um, is is a risk. Um, and a lot of organizations are not willing to take that risk with hiring, you know, completely green juniors into those roles. So I'm, I'm really seeing like a misbalance of information architecture as a specialty being only those that are in the mid or senior levels of their career, uh, which I think is, is challenging because it's kind of like, a, hey, hey, kid, I know you really want to be an IA. Wait five to seven years as a generalist and maybe you can be. And I, I don't know that that's an easy statement to make. Right. Talk to me a little bit about, because one of the interesting things that we find is that as a content strategy consultancy, brain traffic is often sort of straddling this, this uncomfortable divide slash trying to, to connect the dots between what is traditionally considered the UX profession. And I think UX generalist um, or the activities that a UX generalist would, would do on a, on a project or on an ongoing basis, straddling those activities with really, um, Content focused activities, which we, which we often find include or end up, um, having IA as really that major bridge between, between the two sort of separate but related disciplines. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, about how you see that relationship? Um, you know, is that something that would, would help sort of more junior positions if they did start seeing IA more as a part of or more closely related to content strategy versus sitting squarely kind of in UX? I mean, this is, this is a little bit of a, I'm not trying to force you to carve out territories at all. I just, this is a thing that we're constantly trying to untangle in when people are like, okay, UX, you do research and you do 
you know, uh, personas and then you jump into visual design, IA. And so, and it's the, you know, that, that constant struggle and battle for getting content considered way up front. And I just, I just wonder where do you see that relationship between content strategy and IA, um, working really working best together? And is there an opportunity for more junior folks to potentially get a foot in the door with content strategy as an IA and, and see their paths go in a slightly different direction? Yeah, I think that's that's a great a great question. So I think that um, in terms of the relationship that those two things have to one another, I think it's really important that we talk about those two things as um, different disciplines separate from different jobs. Because I think in a lot of cases, content strategists are doing IA work. And in a lot of cases, IAs are doing content strategy work. So there's also there's a yep. ton of overlap amongst people with job titles in those two areas doing both competencies and doing them well. Um, you know, I've seen really strong information architecture work come out of folks that have a job title of content strategy. Um, and I find that like more and more as as your tribe grows and our tribe grows, like I'm seeing a lot of overlap. We, we have a lot of content strategists that are part of the IA Institute. We have a lot of content mm-hmm. strategists that come to World IA Day um, or to the summit. So I feel like there is a lot of overlap kind of at the job level. Um, But from a competency perspective, the way that I I look at it is that information architecture is the definition of the structure. It's deciding how the pieces are going to be arranged to relate to one another. And then content strategy is making sure that that structure has like staying power. It's making sure that you actually have um, the stuff that will bring that structure to life over time. Mm -hmm. And you have Mm -hmm. it in an organized and governed way that is not going to drive your organization crazy or leave you with tumbleweeds on your website. Like mm-hmm. That's that's sort of how I feel about it. Like if you if you try to consider an information architecture without thinking about the content strategy, if you look six, nine, 12 months out from the implementation of that IA, it will probably be very stale versus mm-hmm. if you think about IA in connection to content strategy and you're thinking about them as lockstep, then you have much more of a likelihood that you're going to be looking, you know, two, three, four, five years down the line. And that structure is still going to feel like it's working. Because mm-hmm. have the governance and the the strategic uh, kind of process in place to keep it up and to make sure that the content is influencing the structure. So I feel like there's um, they're so close in nature uh, that I find that you know some people want to say like oh I I do content strategy I don't do information architecture and I just think that that's that's a little silly. I mean unless somebody else is handing you the structure and you're you know filling it in with your content strategy I, I just don't know how you wouldn't be kind of tackling them as as sort of two sides of the same coin. Right. And you know that we have this little quad that we use at Brain Traffic um, to kind of describe content strategy. And the we talk about systems design and IA and structure is part of that. And governance is the other side of that coin, just sort of, um, you know, getting systems in place that ensure that content is being organized and cared for and um, sort of maintaining its integrity over time with the foundation of these systems. And so it's exciting to me to hear you talk about it in that context. Um, Let's change topics quickly because I I really want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the exciting work that you're doing at Etsy, which is everyone's favorite cool company. Can you just tell me a little bit about about your your job day to day, what you're what you're focusing on? Yeah, so um, I am the only information architect at Etsy, um, and you know the, 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 the 
there's kind of a, a scary version of that reality, which would be if you assumed that that meant that I do all of the IA work at Etsy and that all IA work had to go through my hands in order to get done, um, I would be a very overworked and tired person. So the way that we've really approached information architecture at Etsy is to say that IA is a critical skill, but it's also a critical skill that needs to be democratized across all different competencies. So my job is really um, a lot of mentorship and also a lot of sort of like connecting the dots across teams that are working in a very agile way. So we have, um, our organization is divided into uh, groups. We have a group that's dedicated to buyers, a group that's dedicated to sellers, and then we have a cross-functional group dedicated to search and find. Um, and those kind of core parts are all taking on projects that are agile in nature where they're um, you know, formulating hypotheses and then following those hypotheses with very quick experimentation and improvements um, from those based on iteration. So my job is really to keep in contact with all of those different folks and to understand what all of them are working on and how, uh, when you kind of zoom out on the things they're working on, how they interact with each other and how they might, um, you know, either detract from each other or add to each other and then making those connections um, with them. So sometimes that's in the form of making a controlled vocabulary so that they can communicate more clearly across teams. Sometimes that's um, actually going in and doing a little bit more like taxonomy development. And we have a, a taxonomy team at Etsy, uh, which I've partnered really closely with on things like our main category navigation. Um, and then sometimes it's just you know, straight mentoring and consulting of product designers or product managers that are dealing with complex flows or complex challenges from a user perspective. Um, I also manage the voice of the customer program at Etsy. So um, a big focus that I've had for the last year is taking all of the different channels that we have throughout the organization that um, allow us to hear from our customers and connecting the dots uh, of those things so that we no longer have kind of different sources of truth throughout the org based on where you're hearing about something. So connecting what we see in qualitative data with what we see in survey data, with what we hear in our member operations and customer service lines, um, with what we see on social media and kind of connecting all of those things together and then playing those things out for the, the teams that are working on those challenges. It seriously sounds like somebody at Etsy read your book, How to Make Sense of Any Mess, and came to you and was like, can you turn this into a job? Yes, that is actually exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because I was, um, before I went to Etsy, I was actually independent um, for five years. And um, they initially, so Alex Wright, uh, who was the, the head of uh, user research at Etsy at the time, he brought me in um, as a book club speaker. And a bunch of product designers and product managers um, read my book and were really interested in, in sort of my, my framing of things. And then we started to talk about a consulting engagement. And the consulting engagement was basically like, take a look at our information architecture um, and tell us what our challenges are and tell us some opportunities that you see. And one of the opportunities that I saw was that they really could use somebody who was looking across all of these all of these teams that are working agilely from an IA perspective and also to be kind of like an in-house mentor um, and when it came up to do that presentation of my recommendations, they were like, Hey, could that be How you? <laughs> and honestly, at that point, like I'll, I'll, I'll toot my own horn enough to say that it's not the first client that had offered me a full-time job. Um, but it's just the first one that I actually considered, uh, because I just, I felt like in my, so at that point I was there for about six months, part-time consulting for them and flying to and from Brooklyn. And I just really fell in love with their culture and their mission. And I just feel like everyone there um, is really committed to doing the right thing and being like um, collaborative and kind. And yeah, I just, I, I completely fell in love with them. And almost two years later, I'm still completely in love with them. So I, I feel very blessed. 
That's a pretty long honeymoon period. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm waiting for it to end, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's so far so good. Yeah, that's great. And and tell me about um, like tell me a few things that that you've learned being a part of this in-house team um, that have that have surprised you or that that you kind of didn't expect to either encounter or experience on your way through the door. So I had I had some hypotheses going in. Um, right as I was exploring my opportunity full-time with Etsy, I was really starting to expand my thought leadership content around collaboration in IA. And one of the reasons that I kind of put into the pro list of why I might take a job full-time with an in-house team was to kind of test some of these hypotheses and some of this content um, around like, what does it actually mean to collaborate around information architecture and and sort of what are the challenges of that? So a couple of things that have been proven out to me, um, one is like the pace of change is just so darn slow, which is to me, it's, it's interesting because um, in an agile organization, you would almost expect that things would happen very quickly. Uh, but what I see instead is that the things that are happening very quickly are still just drops in the bucket towards these larger complexities that we're working through. So the the pace of change is just, in some cases, excruciatingly slow. Um, and also just, you know, kind of figuring out how um, how influence on a product roadmap is kind of segmented into like what's a good idea versus like what we can get done and what's going to have the effect that we need it to have in terms of metrics and and value and return on investment like that's all been uh, fairly new to me because as a consultant I was in the business of shipping ideas. It was sort of like right. hey hey company X here's what I see here's the opportunities I see you know let me know if you want to talk about any of these in more depth but other than that let me know what happens and you know, you don't really hear about the conversations that are really going on about how they're right-sizing things or how they're discussing the return on investment of, of certain issues at like the business level. So I feel really um, enlightened by that. And I feel like that's because it's my first job as an innie as opposed to an Audi. Um, I, I do feel <laughs> like that's that's like a whole new world for me, uh, which is really interesting. How has being employed full-time changed your ability to kind of volunteer or be, be, you know, maintain kind of a leadership role within the IA community or has it? Um, I would say it, it, the full-timeness of my job has not really, um, changes in my personal life have, um, so I'm, I'm currently six months pregnant, so I've been definitely taking a step back from the community as, uh, you know, I need to focus on my family and, and my, my home life. Um, but one of the, the things that when I was coming into Etsy is full time and we were doing kind of the negotiations of what would this mean if I did this was I just was really clear with them that like, I'm not interested in stopping doing any of the things that I do for the IA community or to progress IA in like a thought leadership capacity. So, you know, they knew that I was going to continue to write about IA. They knew that I was going to continue to speak about IA. Um, they knew that I was going to continue to mentor people and to run events and, and do all these things. And they've been really generous and, uh, and very accommodating in, in that way because I, I was just honest and upfront about it. So I haven't seen a lot of impact on the, the full-timeness from that perspective. So here, this is my last question because we were a little bit out of time, but I, if you, that topic in particular, I actually um, was having a conversation with Sarah Walker Butcher and Catel do about this, about people who are wanting to uh, contribute more time to, to their, um, their community of discipline or, uh, get on stage or attend a conference or um, write a book or write articles and and trying to sort of 
help employers understand that that allowing them to devote part part of their resources, part of their time to that work is going to make them a better employee versus just the, you know, 40 hours of productivity or activity that, that companies are looking for. What would you, what would you, um, what advice would you give to someone who's saying, look, I, I want to further my discipline, but I'm so in the weeds all the time that I don't even know how to make that work? I think that it's it's honestly a conversation that probably needs to start with your manager. And, you know, most people do have those kind of annual or biannual conversations about career path or just about like, you know, job performance. And I think that like when you set goals for yourself, like at Etsy, we're, we're very strongly encouraged to set goals about our personal development. And I do see folks setting goals that are um, about things outside of the building, um, the metaphoric building in my case, since I work remotely. Um, but you know, I think that that's an important thing to kind of like let your manager know and also to frame it in ways that it's really beneficial to the company. I mean, I remember when I was about to have the conversation with Etsy about wanting to continue to do the things that I do, I was really concerned that they were going to be like, well, you're going to have to take vacation time for it, or, you know, w- it'll be limited to a number of days. And honestly, the the response that I got back was, was sort of shocking to me, which is it's good for the company to have you out there talking about this stuff. And I think that sometimes people don't look at it that way. Um, so as much as you can kind of frame what you're going to be going out to the world with as being about your job and about your contribution in your individual industry or your company, I think that that can really help the company with things like recruitment um, and, you know, even getting new clients if you're in an Audi kind of company. Um, so there's, I think there's something to that conversation with management of like, hey, this is something I see as I move from a junior position to a mid position or a mid to a senior, one of the things I really want to focus on is personal development and professional development in these realms. Will you support that? And if they don't, like, I think you need to make a major decision about whether you're at the company that you want to be at, because that's going to continue to be a wall that you're going to hit up against if it's something you really want to do. Um, and putting your nights and weekends on this stuff doesn't always get you the, the results that you're after especially after you have babies. Oh my gosh. I, I, I mean, I'm terrified <laughs> to know, like, cause I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen as a result of this. I mean, I, I had this one really epic Sunday morning at 6am uh, when I was about three months pregnant where I was just like, I just need to go in my Gmail and say no to every single thing. And I did, I sat there for an hour just typing over and over again. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I can't take this. I'm, I'm pregnant. <laughs> And people were so nice about it, but like, how far does that extend into the life of a child? And will I still feel the same way? And um, yeah, it's all to be determined. (laughs) And it's all so different for every parent. You know, I think that's something that has always made me crazy is, you know, the the idea that there's like a best practice for how to balance career and family or it, it, there's not, I mean, different things work for different people. And so it will unfold as it should. It's going to be an exciting ride, whatever happens. It is. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what comes next. And to see a baby. Oh my gosh. He's going to be so cute. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be so cute. And it's a girl. It's a a boy. He. (laughs) Oh, it's a boy. He. All right. It's a boy. Yay. Yeah. That's great. Well, congratulations. Um, Abby, we didn't even get to talk about your book. And so I'm hoping maybe you'll come on the podcast again sometime in the future because I really do kind of want to dig into some of the ideas and concepts and frameworks that you introduced there that I think are so incredibly useful to the content strategy community. Sure. So can I, yeah. can I see you again? Yeah, I love a two-part podcast. Why the heck not? 
Why not? All right, let's do it. Um, Abby, where can our kind listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, so they can find uh, my writing at abbytheia.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, also abbytheia. Um, or also, I'm, I'm very open to emailing with people about their uh, their interest in information architecture. So abbycovert at Gmail. Um, it might take me a while, especially these days, but I will get back to you eventually. You're a superstar. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at, of course, braintraffic.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.